Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, I'm joined in the studio this evening by Colin Bell. Now, he's been involved in all sorts of wilderness safaris and all sorts of things to do with the ecology and sustainability of our magnificent wildlife in Africa and well, specifically Southern Africa. And together with David Bristow, they've just put out the most amazing book. It's called Africa's Finest. And he's going to be just telling us this evening a little bit about the work that they've done. It's taken quite a number of years to put this together, but seriously, well worth the effort. Colin, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello, Corin. Nice to be here. So Africa's Finest, an amazing, supposedly coffee table book, but I'd like to think of it almost as a reference guide, personally. Um, tell us a little bit about what inspired you to do this with David. Well, I think both David and I have been in the tourism industry for a long, long time. I started in 1977. I was very lucky as a young boy. First job out of university to go and work up in Botswana. And over the years, we've seen so many issues crop up in the tourism industry, which have really shocked us. We know there's been lots of very good people around and there's been some shockers. And there's this term greenwashing going around. Mm. I was going to ask you to explain that because you mentioned that quite often. What exactly is greenwashing? Well, greenwashing is where people go out and they trumpet all the great things they're doing for the planet, whether what they're doing with wildlife, what they're doing with conservation, what they're doing for communities, etc., etc. But for many people, and not all, fortunately, but for many people throughout Africa, greenwashing is this great way to go and market that you're doing extraordinary things for the world. But deep down, when you start to scratch through the veneer, they are certainly not green. They're more shocking pink and bright red <laughs> where they are more – a lot of these companies are causing damage to the planet as opposed to being green. and what, So their marketing is quite different to the actual uh, reality. I mean we found some companies which have won the most extraordinary awards for environmental greatness and all the rest. One company is up in, in Zambia where we had the Virgin Environmental Awards – for many, many times. And yet when we went out in the back and we found that they were inside a national park, they were digging big pits inside the national park to dispose of, of their rubbish, where all they needed to do was they needed to take a truck on a regular basis once a week, truck it all the way out to Mfui where there's a proper sort of waste disposal area. But they, they were too lazy, they were too maybe cost conscious, and they were destroying the very environment in which they were supposed to be uh, looking after. They had sewage, raw sewage going straight into the wetlands. And yet this company won massive environmental awards around the world. They were touting the awards. They were talking about all these environmental great things they were doing. And yet when you scratch below the surface, they were the, one of the biggest polluters. So there was a very good example of a company which was greenwashing and had conned a lot of the environmental invigilators around the world into what great work they were doing. But the reality was that they were the eco-pirates. And throughout, throughout the sort of decades, David and I have seen so many of these examples where people have been trumpeting ABC and in reality they were doing the opposite. And we felt that there was no real way to expose these fellows. So David and I were in a situation that we were both independent. We had to be independent for this book, otherwise we would have had people saying that we had vested interests. So we both resigned from every single tourism operation we were involved with or invested in. And we assembled a team of environmental scientists. People have got BSc environmental science. And David's an environmental scientist himself. And they traveled the length and breadth of Africa. And we went and, first of all, we sort of trawled through and we came up with a list of about a 1,000 potential lodges. And we started looking at them from afar. And we whittled it down to a couple of hundred. 
and we probably came up close to 300, which we thought were suitable candidates uh, for some kind of greatness. And uh, we went through the, the process. And the only way we could actually really work out if a company was green or not, we had to go and visit them on site. So we had a team of environmental scientists who traveled around Africa who went and inspected every single one of the, the lodges which we had shortlisted. And when you think of all the thousands of lodges in Africa you th and you hear about all the good things that everybody's doing, you think that there would have been hundreds and hundreds of great candidates. And yet the sadness of what we found is that we only found 50 great, truly, truly great lodges all the way through Africa out of all the thousands. The rest of them had huge blemishes. And that, in our view, was, was a great sadness. And the aim of this book was to try and create a benchmark and a sort of a, a reference where people could actually take this book and say, okay, let me go through my operation. Let it go through from one end to the other. Let's see what we need to change. Let's go and do an internal audit ourselves and use some of these suggestions which we've, we've uh, listed in the book to come up with a checklist for ourselves. So we try to create, uh, and it's all in the very last sort of 20% of the book where we go through all the different things which we suggest people should be doing in the tourism industry. And, uh, and I need to stress, this is rural tourism. I'm not talking about city hotels and stuff like that. This is a very different project. This is rural African tourism, wildlife tourism, conservation tourism, community tourism. So we created this team who traveled around Africa, and they went to all these different lodges, and we whittled it down to the 50 top, top ones. And then we, there was a whole lot of new lodges which were coming through, and there was another sort of 25 places to watch, which we sort of earmarked for, uh, we think, lodges which could be very good and there's another 25 or so which were nearly nearly there who with a little bit of tweaking and changing will make future uh, editions so in in total probably a hundred lodges which we found really made the grade to a certain degree or will be making the grade if they continue what they've been talking about but the sadness was that there was a lot of lodges which were telling us all the great things they were doing and when we got there on the ground we found the country and this book is, first of all, it's a coffee table book. And the reason why it's a coffee table book is that we need to get people to travel to Africa. If we don't get people to travel to Africa in reasonable numbers, we're not going to have a conservation industry. Uh, we need conservation desperately, but conservation without cash is purely a conversation. And so the only way we can get real money coming through is through the people visiting Africa. So it's targeted a lot at the overseas guests traveling to Africa, trying to get Mrs. and Mrs. Schwarz from New York City or from Delhi or from Sydney, London, Paris, wherever, to come and visit Africa. Because so much of the travelers in the Northern Hem Hemisphere, very little comes to the Southern Hemisphere. And I think Africa doesn't get its full quota of tourists. So the intention on the one hand is to try and create the incentive great pictures, come visit Africa. The second part is a reference book where we're saying this is a, a proper book for people to use as a reference book. And so it's part coffee table, part reference book. But if, if you're going through the book itself, as I said, lots of interesting information, one of the things that will strike you and almost mesmerize you into not doing anything for an entire day, which is what happened to me, are the photographs. I mean, you were talking to me before we actually started, we came on air, was the fact that that was a draw card, especially for overseas tourists. I mean, those photographs are literally, well, let's just book the ticket now. We have to go. 
Yeah, we were very fortunate. And one of the things with David and I is that we've been around enough and we know a lot of the very good photographers. And some of the photographers gave their work for free. I mean, look at this front cover. This is yes. a guy called Martin Harvey. Who I think, shame now, this elephant is no longer with us, apparently. That, that front cover tells everything. It's that, just so sad. It's, it's, it's a lot of stories. I mean, when you look at that picture with Kilimanjaro in the background and you think, wow, I've got to go there. The sadness, Martin Harvey... Well, a lot of his photographs in this book. He's one of the great, great photographers of Africa. Pete Oxford, a fellow who um, lives in Marikele National Park. I mean, he lives literally in, in the, inside a national park. Pete is one of the great photographers of Africa. Uh, we've got people like Dana Allen in, in Harare, absolutely superb fellows who absolutely who gave us they, – they embraced the project and gave us their f- photographs to use. But that front cover, I think, sums up everything. It's the most incredible elephant, and that elephant is now dead. Not only is the elephant dead, it was shot by a poacher's bullet. If you look at the snow on Kilimanjaro, it used to be about a third of the way all the way down, and now it's just a little tiny little sliver at the top. It's a global warming story. What you don't see uh, in this photograph is that in this particular park, Amboseli, if you had to look on either side, you'd probably find 50 minibuses looking at an elephant like this. So we've got mass, mass tourism destroying a lot of what we should be conserving. Tourism could be the best conservator on the planet of wildlife areas. But if it's uncontrolled, if it's mass tourism without any controls, tourism can be one of the biggest destroyers. So this front cover tells a lot of different stories. It tells a story of what the dream should be. But it also, behind the service, it actually tells quite a lot of the other side of it, the bad side of tourism. And part of this book is to try and create the motivation for the bad part of tourism to reinvent itself so that it can become the true conservator it has the potential to become. Well, even in the uh, lodges that you have selected for the book, it starts, each chapter starts off with this thing called the green box. And that's the good, the not so good, and some interesting facts. But so how good and how not so good are what you are describing for each of those destinations? Yeah, we felt that even the greatest lodges have got a few blemishes. And so what we try to do is be completely impartial and just say, right, some of these lodges, look at this, look, look what this particular lodge does, and summarize the good, the bad, and some interesting issues. I mean, there's one particular lodge in the Serengeti. Now, the Serengeti is this extraordinary system, which everybody knows about with the big migration. But what's known, not known uh, in many spheres is that the people around the Serengeti are some of the poorest, and they get very little of the benefits most of the benefits go to Arusha and Dar es Salaam and people overseas. And uh, the local folk who live around the Serengeti have been struggling. And along comes a fellow called Paul Tudor Jones and partners with a local company from South Africa called Sinkita. They've put 130 million US dollars into this project, most of it going into community work. And what they've essentially done is that they have sorted out a big chunk of the Serengeti's issues. I mean, it takes an extraordinarily wealthy man with a great, great vision. He'll never get his money back. But what he's done is put his heart and his money into making sure that this Serengeti system is going to survive as best as he can do it. And partnering with a great company like Sagita, the two together have come up with the most extraordinary combination of brilliance of operations. I mean, Sagita is probably the top company in Africa when it comes to quality consistently. And uh, they've partnered with a fantastic guy with Deep Pockets. And the two together have come up with a formula which is just extraordinary. One day, one project in, um, in Zimbabwe, they feed 20,000 kids every single day 
Now, it's an extraordinary number when you think of one company. Can do that. Can do that. One South African company in Zimbabwe is feeding 20,000 kids every single day. And yet a company which is doing such greatness has also got a few blemishes. And I think they're fully aware of it. Now, they still use generators to create the energy. And now they are looking at now converting from generators to solar. The other thing you mentioned to me earlier was the fact you're talking about this guy coming in with these thousands and thousands of euros and things to, to make a difference. But what you were saying to me earlier is that in some cases, it, you don't need to spend that much money. In some cases, it could actually be saving them, them money to that's, change slightly. Well, that's exactly it. You know, that there is no reason in today's world with today's technology and the price of solar that anybody in a remote area should be running a generator to create electricity. It's now cheaper for a person or a lodge to go and create energy from solar in a remote area because the problem, part of the problem in the remote areas is that it's the cost of the fuel, but it's also the cost of getting the fuel to that location. Then you've got to run a big expensive generator. If you convert to solar today, you can save yourself money. Not five years ago. This is the beauty of the project right now because five years ago, the cost for a, a watt of solar was around about seven US dollars a watt. Today you can buy great quality solar which is guaranteed for 50 years. It'll cost you 70 cents a watt. So the, the price of solar has plummeted. At the same time the price of fuel, of diesel, has gone through the roof. And we've had this extraordinary situation where now a lot of companies in rural areas which are running generators should not be running generators. They should have a generator as a backup and they should be creating the energy from solar because the cost of solar is now so good and the technology is so reliable. So what you're basically saying is that there are solutions to all to most of these problems and they needn't be something where people think, well, gosh, I'm actually going to have to close my business because I can't afford all of them. Most of them, as you say, most of the solutions are actually going to possibly help you. Well, this is the beauty. In 2013, just about every solution is there. The technology has evolved to such an extent. Things like sewage. You can buy relatively inexpensive sewage plants which decompose all the sewage, so that by the end of it, it's almost pure perio, which comes out at the end. Now, 10 years ago, this was not possible, unless you had a huge, big, expensive plant. So you can go and take all your processed grey water and create water which is non-polluting. Now, if you go to places like the Telic River in the Masai Mara, water in the Telic River right now is probably in the region of 5,000 times too toxic for a human being to drink. The worst statistic is that it's 25 times too toxic for a human being to touch. Now, this is the very same waters in the rivers which the wildlife has to drink. Why? Because the tourism industry has not spent the money on sewage plants in the lodges. So you're getting raw sewage coming out from these lodges into these rivers, and that's polluting the rivers on which the wildlife has to survive. Now, it's wrong. It's simply wrong. As a tourism industry, we've got to look at ourselves. We've got to look at every individual component of our business and say, what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong? How can we improve? Four basic things. Energy, waste, communities, and conservation. And each one of those has got a different subset of issues which every single company needs to look at. And the great companies 
are doing most of that right. And that's why we have those, going back to what you said earlier about the, the good and the bad and the interesting, because even the great companies still have room to improve. And in five, ten years' time, we'll look back and we'll be able to say, wow, we can even improve further as technology gets better and better. Now, even since this book has been out, you mentioned to me that you've had some reaction from people who didn't quite make it. And you are starting to make a difference because I think it's, almost, it's one of those things, because there's a website as well, which I'll get into in a moment, but it's one of those things that these lodges really want to be a part of they want to be seen to be one of the best so you are making a difference because you're actually inspiring them hopefully to change well we had a fantastic team as i said earlier and these people went around people like corin and kevin's uncle these are environmental scientists and part of the interchange with every lodge they went to is they sat down with them and, and gave them a scorecard at the end and said this is what you're doing well this is what you're doing badly and that conversation started to go and we found that in that conversation, a lot of people said, I didn't even know that there was a solution or I didn't even know I was doing bad. And so the ability to interchange and interact with our different uh, lodges, which we went to visit, became part of the process. And we gave every single one feedback of what we thought they were doing great and what, where we thought they could improve. Now, some people have ignored it. Fortunately, it's the minority. But a lot of them said, wow, I didn't realize it. And they've now taken a lot of the comments and criticism as constructive, which is meant to be, and have started to change. And we've seen a quite a big swing already. Now, the book's only been out a um, couple of weeks, but the process behind the book has been going on for nearly three years. And that process has been an interesting process. And in that conversation we've had with our different lodges, yes, we've seen massive changes. And that's been the exciting thing. People have, I think most of the people in the wildlife industry do want to do good. It genuinely, yes, there are a couple of pirates out there who absolutely don't give a hoot. I mean, we had one organization in Mozambique who insisted that we paid them in Switzerland to go and visit them in Mozambique. I mean, one of the most bizarre... <laughs> No, then he starts smelling a rat immediately. Well, exactly. It's we like actually, really weird. I said we're actually not even going to go and visit these folks because one of the most basic things is that the money must go to the country. Yeah, money well, can't go to somewhere else. Now, one of the biggest problems in, in our tourism industry is that a lot of the money goes offshore. You pay a person in Jersey or Guernsey or wherever it is, and the money gets dribbled down. There's a very, very famous company in Kenya which has one of the most prime locations and they have a deal with the community. They've got to pay a park fee, and that's about $45 per person per night, and then they have to pay 15% of turnover. This company for decades has been paying something like, uh, has been declaring that their revenue is $47 per person per night, and has been paying the community 15% uh, of $47. Now, they got caught out the other day. Finally, the community cottoned on. And when you go to their website, you'll see the charge is something like four or $500 per person per night. And they were being paid that offshore, dribbling into East Africa, the smallest amount possible to cover the food and the basics, you know, which they need to pay this, their staff, et cetera, et cetera. And the rest they were keeping offshore. Now, that's one of the biggest issues. We, it's called leakage. In the tourism industry, it's leakage. Now, fortunately, in Southern Africa, it doesn't happen that much because... Most people want to live here, and this is where they want their money. But in other parts of Africa, people have got into the tourism industry as it's a quick, easy way to move money around. Uh, it, it's one of the most basic things. A country needs to get its foreign exchange. Now, when, let's say, when we were asked to pay in Switzerland... <laughs> it just boggles the mind. <laughs> you just start saying, hang on, hang on, you just don't get the plot. And, and, and the, 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 uh, the marketing rep who was in South Africa tried to justify this. Oh, and she started to get all quite sure to him. He said, I'm sorry, hang on. It's just wrong that we have to pay you in Switzerland to go and visit you in Mozambique. So, well, I'm you know, glad you didn't go. 
Bible. They're certainly not part of the book. Good. Right. The other nice thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that you have a website, africasfinest.co.za. And the nice thing about that, I mean, we've got the book, and that's the book. But the, the website is going to be it's, – it's fluid. There's going to be updates and, and changes. You're going to be seeing possibly new sites coming online that, that have improved themselves. You'll be seeing lots more information. So if people want to follow the story – africasfinest.co.za will be a continually moving experience, literally. There's that and also Facebook. Uh, David's doing a lot of uh, little stories on a sort of a regular basis on Facebook. And yes, on and the, would you on, just look for Africa's Finest on Facebook? Okay. Absolutely. And then on the, on the website, there's already some new lodges which have made it into different categories which weren't in the book. And as they've improved themselves, we update it. What we're about to do now on the website is to put the entire suggestions of how a lodge should behave. We've got a section called the Ultimate Green Lodge. And we're about to put that entire section there and all the links of the different uh, technologies which people uh, can look at to to install in their different lodges. So we're going to dump that uh, now. And that's going to be a moving document. It's going to be continually updated because we want this as, to become like a source of reference where people who in the middle of nowhere don't know how to do things, they can just click on there, have a look, and uh, they can come through to us. We'll help them. We don't want to make a big fuss on that. We, if, the more we can help different operations around Africa to become more sustainable and more community-friendly, whatever it is, we will help them as much as we can. Do you welcome comments from the general public who've possibly been to a lodge and Absolutely. seen something? Absolutely. Any suggestions? And, and, you know, one of the things as well is that out of the thousands of lodges, I'm sure that we missed a couple. And this is where people have been very good. What about this? What about that? And so, and then so, you can look into it. Absolutely. absolutely. And also maybe there's, there's, they've seen different things about some of the lodges in here which – you know, they actually aren't quite good enough. You know, mm. we all need to be kept on our toes, including ourselves. So if you're out there traveling and you come across something that you've spotted on the website or in the book, please, um, Colin and David, I'm sure would be delighted to hear from you. Definitely. So, I mean, if, if they've said something in the book and they've said, mm. gosh, they do this, that, and the next thing, and you get there, and there's no way that they're doing that because maybe David and Colin have disappeared. And uh, now they decide, oh, it's actually easier just to go back to doing what we were doing before. Please let them know. Because they won't be in the book anymore or on the website anymore <laughs> once they've been checked out. It's almost, it's almost like a watchdog type of thing, which we need because we've got to the stage now, unfortunately, where people in some cases can't be trusted just to get on with it and do it properly themselves. Corin, you're absolutely right. And the tragedy of human beings is that mm. uh, sometimes people take cut corners, especially in tough times. Absolutely. And certain things we should never be cutting corners on because that's going to affect our viability going forward. Right, and if people are wanting to get hold of a copy of this book, Colin, via the website? Via the website or um, email one of us and we'll make sure we get it through. Probably the easiest way is just to go on to africasfinest.co.za with all the instructions will be on there if you'd like to get hold of a copy. Very worthwhile book. And as I said, you'll be literally mesmerized by those photographs. They are absolutely stunning. But don't forget to read the text because that's the real important part. And that's where we have to learn about what's going on on this magnificent continent of ours. Colin, thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. And uh, hopefully we've inspired some people to take a bit more care and a little bit more note about what's going on around them, especially out there in the wild. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Corin. I was chatting there with Colin Bell, who, together with David Bristow, have produced this most magnificent book called Africa's Finest. And if you'd like to find out more about what they were doing, about the project itself, 
Also, if you'd like to follow what's going to be happening in the future, because as Colin said, this is a very fluid website, so you'll be able to find all sorts of things on there. It's www.africasfinest.co.za, and there's also details on there how to, if you'd like to get hold of the book, how you can possibly do that. So have a look at the website, www.africasfinest.co.za, and David Bristow is also running a Facebook page with the same name, Africa's Finest. So have a look at that as well for more information. Time to travel with Karen Key. Ormantis is a collection of privately owned boutique hotels and eco-escapes around the world, and it was recently announced that they will be developing a five-star hotel on the island of St. Helena, and it's one of the most remote places in the world. Joining me now is Adrian Gardner, founder and chairman of Mantis. Adrian, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello, Corinne. It's so nice to be able to speak to you again. Yes, this is rather exciting news. I mean, St. Helena has been one of those mystical places that not everybody had access to because you could only get there by the, the RMS St. Helena, the mail ship. Now it's opening itself up to tourism, which I'm not quite sure if it's a good or a bad thing. Quite interestingly, you know, obviously there was quite a lot of debate about that with the, the local population because, I mean, they were isolated, and we've just been there. And it, as you rightly said, the only way to get there at this point in time is on the RMS, which takes you five days to get there. Then you have to stay on the island for eight days while the RMS goes to Ascension, then come back and collects you, and then another five days back. So currently, the main passenger list of the uh, the ship are the saints. They refer to them as saints. So that's the majority, and obviously other people that are going out there, because it's run, as you know, it's still a British protectorate. Mm -hmm. So 65% of the labor force is still employed by the government there. So I think with the opening of an airport, um, it will certainly change the dynamics of the island, uh, whether for good or bad, who knows. But, you know, at the moment what happened, which was quite interesting, Corin, is that the population uh, demographics, uh, it certainly meant that a lot of the young people have left the island because there's obviously not much to do there or much employment there. And being a British protectorate, each of uh, the inhabitants have a British passport. So they leave and they can work in the European Union. So there was a great sort of migration of um, younger, skilled people. So, you know, what happens? What do you do in the end? So I think the decision is probably the right decision. Well, there's, what, just over 4,000 people living on the island, so it's a very small population, and it's one of those very much undiscovered, will be, would obviously be, because people can't get there, and it's, it's still almost stuck back in time, so there's a lot of history on the island, I mean, there's a Napoleon connection, there's, there's so much that happens there, and the one thing I was very pleased to read, Adrian, is that in building this five-star hotel that Mantis is doing, you're taking into account the, the, the sensitivity of the history and the environment and all of that, which I'm assuming you would have to have done if you you were going to be building there. Yeah, and what was, I think, quite a privilege for us is that Mantis was chosen as uh, the hotel of uh, uh, their first choice hotel group, and we were given first choice of site. So we've chosen an old historic site, which is Ladder Hill Fort. It's at the top of what they refer to as Jacob's Ladder, 699 steps. So obviously we're hoping that a funicular will go up there because that'll join the town with uh, our offering. So there's quite a lot. We're doing the feasibility study at the moment. We have a team over there, uh, besides the, the team that I took over, who are doing all the, the different things that we have to do when we uh, build a hotel. But we're lucky in that a South African company, Basil Reed, are building the airport now. So there's a lot of uh, construction technique there. So now's the chance to do it, if, we, if they're going to do it. So I think they have to do it, because the airlines that have been 
targeted to fly in there won't fly in there if there are no hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. Currently, there are only 18 hotel rooms that are en suite there. So we've got to get some room numbers up there. Otherwise, the, the hotel link doesn't work. The other thing about the hotel that you're doing, I've mentioned it's a five-star hotel, but it's not an enormous, sort of very big commercial hotel. I mean, it's obviously a commercial enterprise, but it's not enormous. It, it's quite, as I said before, sensitive to the to the location. Yeah, we're only doing 45 rooms. That's the maximum we can get on there. And you know that our model, uh, all of our hotels, our biggest mm-hmm. hotel in our 60-odd around the world is uh, 62 rooms. So that's our, our niche. So we're obviously going to make it very small. And our sort of mantra is unearthing, unearthing the exceptional. So we think that this is an exceptional part of the world. We think our site's exceptional. We think the product's going to be exceptional. So we're really very excited about it, I must say. But it's going to be two years off before the, the airline uh, or the runway is finished. And then it'll take us two years if once we get the go-ahead uh, to complete and open. And then you must realize there's nobody there that's trained. So the other important thing is that I brought a, uh, a few of them out here in charge of the education, and uh, we showed them all the things that we did, plus the hospitality offerings in this country where the hotel schools and everything, plus our university in Port Alfred, where we do the degree in hotel management and hospitality. So uh, there's quite a lot that we're offering besides just the development side and the hotel side. So it's, uh, there's quite an interesting conservation ethic there. So we, together with the Wilderness Foundation, with our chair, also involved in some of that work. So it's overall a very interesting and exciting project. Will you predominantly be using local skills when you're doing the building? There's limited local skills, but we obviously will tap off um, Basil Reed. The other Mm. interesting thing when you mentioned uh, Napoleon, I also wanted to just remind us South Africans that 6,000 Boers were uh, held there during the Boer War that they went out there. So there's a lot of South African connection there. Yeah, it's one of those places, and, and I always like to th- I always like to tell people that he actually ordered local Van de Constance, the the wine here from Constantia, um, to drink over there because it was his favourite wine. Hundred so. percent correct. <laughs> we made quite an issue of that when oh, we did were you? over there. <laughs> one of us took a bottle over just to remind them all. Yes, they've they've started making that again here. At, yes, uh, mm. quite right. So we took a little bottle over and just presented it to the governor there, and we all had a taste. So it's he was quite. It's rather a nice connection, right. actually, just yeah. to have that little South African connection. I hope you're going to make something of that when you build your hotel there, Adrian? No, no question. The other thing that we're rather hoping is, you know, there's talk that the RMS, uh, the Royal Mail ship, will stop once the airport's open. But we think that the five-day cruise there or back and fly one way really makes it a worthwhile experience. We thoroughly enjoyed the trip. I mean, it takes you back in history. You know, you can imagine on the RMS, the quizzes at night, the bingo, mm-hmm. and all those things that they used to do. So it was really fun. You know, comparing the RMS to the big cruise liners at the moment, I mean, RMS is actually quite a small ship. Very so small. It's, it's, not, it's not one of these huge cru- you know, com- cruise liners. So it is, as you say, back in the old days. That thing has been going for years. It really has. And it's half cargo and half passengers. So I think the passenger load on that is just over 100. And we're hoping, we've just put in a, quite a bit to do the marketing of, of the ship so we can increase the passenger capacity and start exposing the island. Uh, prior to the opening. So there's a couple of cruises going out there now where they'll go out for the five days. The ship will actually stay there for four days. And there's no harbour there, so you go by tender boat Mm. from the main ship to the mainland, and it'll stay, then you come back at night backwards and forwards. So we're doing quite a lot of... We've done quite a lot of research as to where we think the market is, and it'll be interesting to know that the two most revered people in 
French history at the moment on Napoleon and de Gaulle. So, you know, that connection makes it uh, very attractive for the European market. Now, getting back to the hotel that's hopefully going to be there in not too long, in the not too distant future, what exactly are you hoping to incorporate into that hotel? You mentioned 45 bedrooms. What else? Well, we're going to do a standalone restaurant because there's an exceptional site there, so which will obviously service the hotel and we hope outside guests. Uh, we would do the normal other things like the spa, business centre and that sort of thing. So it's a normal, typical um, hotel with most of the offerings. But, you know, nothing really. I mean, then obviously the trips around the island. Well, the island's uh, quite small, but it's very, it's volcanic, so it's very hilly. And it's only five miles by ten miles. So, you know, it takes quite a long time to get around because of the road infrastructure, which is limited. As you said, it's back in history, the old cars there. You know, there's one interesting thing at the moment. All the old cars that are being dumped, there's no crushing plant, in other words. So they're actually exporting all that stuff back here, scrap metal. Good heavens. You know, because they've got nowhere to sort of, besides digging a big hole Mm. and putting the stuff in there. So they're breaking it down and shipping it back in containers because the ship comes back empty. You know, a couple of months ago, I spoke with the director of tourism on Santelina because a lot of people were saying to me, gosh, but, you know, it's such, such a small place. There's nothing to do there. And I spoke to the director of tourism. I mean, he could have gone on for two days telling me how much there was to do on the island. There's an awful lot to do there. So it's really one of those real exciting new finds as far as destinations are concerned. And don't think you're going to be bored because I'm jolly sure that you're going to keep, be kept really busy while you're there. No question. But, you know, the interesting thing, there are no beaches there mm. besides, you know, and because there's no sand or anything, so it's that volcanic grey stuff there. But, I mean, the, the fishing and the, and the wildlife and the birds. I mean, our people were swimming with whale sharks there. So, you know, it's, and as you said just now, it's some part of the world that hasn't been seen. So there's that intrigue. Do you know that the director of tourism now is a South African? I think you, you probably know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do, Kathy Alberts. Yes. There now. Mm. So she, she's looking after it. So I think that's quite a coup for us in South Africa to have a South African there uh, also promoting the island. So, and, you know, with our, our main office, our main international office in Europe, in the UK, uh, we think that uh, we can expose it for sure. So just give us a little bit of a background on Mantis for those who don't know what Mantis is all about. I mean, as I mentioned, you're a collection of privately owned boutique hotels. So you are involved very much in the more intimate, personal kind of service and hotel business rather than the huge, enormous sort of 1,000, 2,000 room buildings. Yeah, and what we do is uh, our sort of model is that we try and uh, as far as possible, every product has to be different. But the, the what isn't different is the service levels that you get from it. So if you take our African product, remember it all started with the Shamori Game Reserve. Mm. And I subsequently sold it to Dubai World. And we haven't got a game reserve in South Africa at the moment because I've under a restraint, which I'm respecting, which has only got a, not much longer to go. So uh, watch the space. <laughs> uh, so anyway, but so that really gave us an opening to move into other parts of Africa. So I think our, our really prime product and something that, uh, most South Africans have seen game. You go to a game reserve, you see it on the ground off the, the normal game uh, viewing vehicle. But we have this incredible product, which we own 100%, called the Zambezi Queen, which is on the Chobe River. Mm. It, it's amazing. You've got to see game from the water if you want to see a different experience of game. Just recently acquired with a partner up there, the Pride of Zambezi. We have it at the Victoria Falls, the only private game reserve there called uh, the Stanley in Livingston. And the only part of that part of Zimbabwe that has rhino, we have a herd of black rhino, we're the custodians of, uh, for the national parks there. Then we have, um, uh, in South Africa, our 
Uh, we have uh, two blocks of flats on the waterfront called Law Hill. We have a wine farm near Stellenbosch called Lavenere. We have three guest houses in Cape Town. The last word properties, Constantia, Franschhoek, and uh, Komiki. And then on the garden route, we have two properties called uh, Views and Lake Pleasant. And then in uh, Port Elizabeth, we have a very unique boutique hotel called Number 5. And then we have Oceana uh, near um, Port Alfred. And then uh, we have the Learning Hotel, uh, yeah, this, the Stenden Learning Hotel in Port Alfred. And then Johannesburg, we have the Monarch. So that's our sort of cross-section in South Africa and close by. Then we've just opening four hotels in Nigeria at the moment, uh, two in Lagos, one in the capital, Ibuja, and one in a, a sort of a, a redeveloping a, a wildlife area, believe it or not, there. So we're doing something there for in the middle between Lagos and Abuja. And then in the UK, we have four hotels, the Draycott, uh, Lord Milner, Kanazara House, and one in Cheltenham, uh, which is in Ellenborough Park, incredible hotel there. And then um, in uh, Paris, we have the Kepler, which is a, man- a marketing contract. We have a most famous hotel in New York called the Sherry Netherland, and uh, a few others in Chile, and same in South America. We're the only company, hospitality company in the world that is on all seven continents. So believe it or not, we have the tented camping at Kalkteko, which we open for seven to ten weeks a year. Uh, and then we have a lot of boat experiences, and then we have um, our extreme products, like the Ice Hotel, uh, where you can fly into space. Uh, we are just doing some Bear grill stuff. We have Legenda in Nyasa, uh, the Nyasa Reserve in Mozambique. And so it goes on. So our group today, uh, in terms of some marketing and management contracts. There's about 60 hotels around the world. So I spend most of my time in aeroplanes, but visiting these incredible resorts. Very lucky lifestyle you lead. <laughs> I wonder sometimes now to be at home, but mm. it is very exciting. And um, I think that just for your listeners, I'm sure a lot of them would have heard of Bear Grylls. Oh, yes, the complete nutcase. I'm yeah. sorry, he is a lunatic. But anyway, we have his franchise for his extreme product that um, we're going to, uh, we have the license to do those big rules, um, you know, where you go out into the yes. thing for a week or weekends and all the rest of it worldwide. So we've opened in the UK. Our first was in Scotland, which is an amazing success. So we're bringing that to Africa very shortly. So um, we're living in some very exciting times as far as our product is concerned. Well, this Santolina thing sounds like it's right up your alley, Adrian. Something else that's really unique and different and going to be, I'm sure, absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. Wish you much success with this. Hopefully we'll catch up with you again yeah, once construction nice to to starts. Thank you for your show and what you do for us in tourism. Only we pl- really appreciate it, Karen. Only a pleasure. And hopefully we'll catch up with you again once building has started and uh, we can chat about how that's going. So thank you so much for your time this evening. Okay. Keep well and thank you to your listeners. Thanks, Adrian. Good night to Good you. Good night. Adrian Gardner is the founder and chairman of Mantis. And for more information about Mantis, as you heard, there's loads of properties all over the world, rather exciting ones. And this Bear Grylls thing sounds quite amazing. Maybe you'd like to go and do that for a change. Have a look at their website. It's www.mantis, that's M-A-N-T-I-S, mantiscollection.com. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, the Forgotten Route train to the Karoo is a new tour following in the steps of diamond miners and early explorers from Cape Town to the Karoo. Francois van Binsbergen is the owner and spokesperson for the Forgotten Route and owner of Wineflies Wine Tours. Francois, good evening. Welcome to the show. 
Hi, hello, how are you? Well, I'm very well, thank you. This is a fabulous tour. I was reading through what you do on it, and I sort of thought to myself, well, God, why hasn't anyone thought of this before? Uh, you know what, uh, we've done this uh, like a couple of years ago, uh, me and a couple of friends went up, and um, just for just for just for just for fun, really. And I've realised there's actually something in it. You know, we all dressed up with top hats and mm. all of that. You know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we had little umbrellas and all of that. And we, um, I, did, I just realised I've been in the tourism for quite a while, and I've just realised there's something about the Karoo that needs to be. Um, the forgotten uh, Karoo, without the cliche, that needs to be founded again, you know? But the thing about your tour, though, Francois, it's not just, well, you get on a bus and you stop here and look at something and get back on the bus. It's, it's, a full, it's more of an experience than a tour. Definitely so. Basically, what it is, is, is um, we, you know, in the mornings, we actually, uh, um, without you knowing, um, you actually meet people in the Green Market Square. We actually have um, our tour guide standing in Green Market Square and you follow through Green Market Square and then you just hear extra, extra, read all about it, you know, like the old school mm, saying, mm. and that's your tour guide standing there dressed up with a top hat and a pocket watch and a, and a cane and all of that, you know, and that's how the tour starts. And then we take people through the, the company gardens, explain them exactly like the history of, you know, of, of Cape as such. And then we take them through to Kimberley Hotel and, um, at Kimberley Hotel, I don't know if you know, but Kimberley Hotel in Cape Town was the official departure point for the horse carriages back in the 1800s for but that, the diamond that, run. That hotel, I mean, if I, I'm in Cape Town, so you look at that hotel, I see it often when I pass by. It looks like it's something out of a bygone era. I mean, they haven't done much to the facade, so it still looks like it looked then. I'll tell you what. It's uh, amazing. The floor itself there, and um, I know one of the guys obviously working there, the floor itself there is the original floor. The bar is the original bar. Apparently, there's a story that says that um, the first million-pound check was signed over from uh, um, from Cecil John Rhodes uh, over to Barney Bonato for his shares in the De Beers uh, mining industry. You know, so it's got a lot of history, and that's really nice because that's kind of like where our tour then departs from, and, and you then do, we go in the Karoo. You tell the story while you're there, so people get the feel of where yeah, you're going. Yeah, obviously, okay. you know, we take a little um, Polaroid pictures of people. We have a designed a little Karoo passport. Oh, nice. Place a picture, uh, place a picture in the passport, and then we go like, there we go. Now let's go and continue forth, henceforth. So from the Kimberley Hotel, it's off to Rawsonville by bus. That's correct. And then we go to Kirabu Wine Estate, the local family there. And then we do some wine tasting there. We learn a bit about the history of the wine farm itself. And we incorporate it, obviously, with a big movement of the early uh, settlers, really, up towards the Diamond Rush. So it's all chronologically that we try to follow up. And then off on a train. And it's not, I mean, it's the social laws of mail. So it's not the old train of, of old, basically. But it's no. still, it's not the... You know, it, it's still on a train, and you're still going on a train it's journey. A train. So it's what's a really slow nice journey. about the train is, is the fact that you, you you are following in the footsteps because back in those days the people took the train, mm. um, and then um, it's the scenery. You get to see it the way they type of uh, have, have seen it back in those days. And, you know, then you arrive in Mikey's Fontaine, and Mikey's Fontaine is a fantastic place. It's a one horse town. I love that place. You know that uh, very song, well. Uh, there's a, there's a train on Mikey's yes. from uh, Sonia Harold. <laughs> yes, uh, I remember that. Classic. And then um, we actually do that. And when we arrive in Mikey's Fontaine, there's one horse town. And then people are really stepping back in time and they're mm. really feeling like, 
what is going on here? Where are we? It's like a different dimension. It's uh, really something taken from the 1800s, and it hasn't really changed at all. So then, you know, as you arrive in Mikey's Fontaine, we take you to, 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 you know, to your rooms and so on, and we do all weird and wonderful things with you uh, whilst you're there. Because you do a night bus tour in Mikey's Fontaine, and Mikey's Fontaine is one of those places that is apparently full of ghosts. So there's lots of nice ghost stories, I'm sure, that you can tell when you're there. Yeah, definitely so. I mean, we actually, we go on a, the, the, this bus, and the bus is known as the shortest tour in the world. <laughs> now, it's absolutely phenomenal because the, it's very dry humor. And it's, um, I mean, for example, if you drive down the main road, this road used to be actually the old N1. But now we're actually standing in the road and you drive down this road and you, the, the guy would, for example, your tour guide would say, as you drive with this bus, he would say, and people, we turn left because there is no right. Because there's actually no right, you know. So that's the type of uh, dry humor. Very historically based mm. and with, you know, um, a tongue-in-cheek uh, tongue type of uh, thing that we're trying to uh, combine with a lot of fun. And the traditional Karoo lamb brine, I mean, that would have to be happen out in that part of the world because, I mean, that is just so Karoo. Obviously. No, we, 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 we do that. We have uh, Karoo lamb brine choppies uh, and then obviously catering for vegetarians as we are a tourism company. And then um, after the Karoo lamb brine, um, then what you do is, is uh, we do a bit of a, we call it an odd night stroll. And the odd night stroll basically entails that we pay, take people, we've got um, um, authorization from Mikey's Fontaine itself to take the people into the museum at night time. And it's a very eerie museum. Mm. It's uh, freaky. It's very historical. And um, it's just such an intense experience, especially if you visit a museum at night time, you know. Mm. Then afterwards, if weather allows and if we feel like it, because sometimes we just don't feel like it because <laughs> the, 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 there's quite a bit of a festive um, mm. uh, um, vibe going oh, right. on. right, okay. Then we um, do some stargazing. We've got a telescope and um, we, because, um, I mean, this is 90 kilometers south from Sutherland. Mm. Now, Sutherland is one of the best star viewing places in the Southern Hemisphere. So the stars is amazing, you know. So you do, so like after you could do a lamp chop, you do an odd night stroll, you've, you, you, you see the stars at nighttime and then only to end the fact that you're actually going back to the bar and you're doing honky-tonk music mm -hmm. around this old piano with a guy with his hat on, his top hat on and so on. So it's, it's kind of, it's really you're stepping back into a different dimension of the 1800s. Now the sad part is though, Francois, we have to leave the next morning. Oh, this is true. Yeah. But it's fine. Oh. Because the next morning you actually, um, the, we've, got a, we've, got a, we've got a breakfast there and it's, and it's done in a very... Uh, um, Oh, it's just you know, it's just so stuck in time, really. You I know? love this. I absolutely uh, love this. Yeah, it's like poached eggs and and the baked beans, the warm baked beans. You know, it's like yes. all quite a, quite colonial as such. You know, mm. and then uh, we drive back and we um, visit the old cemetery that that's there where Mr. James Douglas Logan um, is, is buried, um, which was the founder of Mikey's Fontaine. So there's again a lot of history um, aspects of it, and then we actually. We drive through and we've done a little bit of research and we, we as a company trying to keep it very rustic, very real, very authentically South African with a touch of bohemian, a touch of madness, you could almost say. And then we stop over at Opa Bat Savunkel. And Opa Bat Savunkel is basically, it's a butchery, which we just found. They're not, they're not, they've never been geared up for tourism. We just found this place. And we asked Tani Haniki 
to um, show us how biltong is being made, how dried fruit is being made, because they make it there. And then afterwards, that we actually sit on one of the stoops. And we have a poiki course there, and um, the, there's, there's more beer, there's more wine flowing. And it's just a festive uh, way back. After that, we actually head through the beautiful Ku Valley, and then we stop over at Montague, where we do a beer tasting, uh, local craft beers at Montague. And um, then, uh, while well, our last stop really before we go back home is, is we um, stop at an Anglo, old Anglo Boer Wharf fort. And again, sticking with the history, sticking with that era. And then we start slowly but surely making our way back home. Usually the feeling in the bus is uh, festive and um, the people are still continuing with their night actually before. So it's, but it's really what it is about. It is a, it's a historical journey done in a tongue-in-cheek way with um, the focus on keeping it fun and focused on the market of the locals, you know, wanting to learn about history and also the corporate market as well. You know, those guys that actually want to do team buildings and that type of stuff. It's a perfect bachelor's as well. Because it's only two days and one night, so it's not as if it's a long trip. No, no, it's not a killer. I mean, it's, it's you know, when you get back home, you are definitely tired because it's been eventful. But, I mean, you, you come back home with learning. One of the, the people that actually been on our tour said, like, he's never learned so much history about the Karoo as he's done on, as he's done on, our, on, on our tours. So there's... Um, there's history, tongue-in-cheek, fun. Now, I just need to ask you whether I've got this information with a typing error on it or whether it is correct that this actually costs you 1,250 rand per person. I mean, that sounds a bit cheap there, Francois. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I think it should be a typing error, but actually <laughs> it's, it's not. not. <laughs> Currently, our price is only 1,250 rand, and that's um, basically everything that I said but the Not only the thing drinks. that you pay for is just your own drinks, obviously, because we don't know how much um, you know you'd be drinking at the bar, and also just your own lunches. So one thousand two hundred fifty rand includes it all. It sounds like one of those almost things you have to put on your bucket list now because you have to go and experience this. It is just the most fabulous thing. I love history, and this to me would just be ideal, just to discover the history of that part of the world, which is amazing. And it sounds like a whole lot of fun while you're doing it. So you're learning without realizing you're actually learning anything. Yeah. You know what? Um, It's funny that you say bucket list. I've got an email today about uh, uh, one of our clients saying, uh, she's booking 13 people, and she just said the, the heading in the email is called bucket list. So you're quite correct. <laughs> and uh, we, we're keeping it. Uh, you know what? Um, we're a big, big believers. We're quite, um, we're quite romantics, and we lose ourselves uh, in that. And we're trying to keep it very romantic in the sense of history. Think David Livingston. Think uh, Sherlock Holmes, that era. That's what we really love, and um, there's a lot of specialness behind it, so we're trying to keep it that way. Francois, it sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. I hope those people listening will be phoning you up or checking out the website and booking because this is something really different and really special to go and do. Thank you for your time this evening. I'm going to stop you right there and just going to say to you the website is theforgottenroot.co.za. Perfect. Thank you for your time <laughs> this evening, Francois. Lacker, man. Thanks. Take care. Good night to you. Ciao. Francois van Binsbergen is the owner and spokesperson for The Forgotten Route and the owner of Wine Flies Wine Tours. For more information or to book, you can call 021-423-2444 or take a look at www.theforgottenroute.co.za. And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you again next Monday evening, just after nine, with the Law Report. So join me then. 
If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, email me on travel at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM. But right now, it's time for some late night music. <laughs> 